Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Dinsky teaches on the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Matt talks about how busyness and status are oftentimes the killers of compassion in our hearts. He also talks about how Jesus poses the question, are you being a good neighbor, and how it applies to our lives today. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Amen. Guys, welcome. Welcome to Fellowship Greenville on Mother's Day. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Hope you guys are having a great day. Hope you guys wish your moms happy Mother's Day. Your grandmas, they count too. They need a call. Maybe maybe like your godmom. Maybe just a woman in your life who's like, man, she has been like a mom to me. Make sure you call them, love them, thank them. It is so good to see you guys here tonight. If it's your first time here, welcome. I want you guys to know you are loved here and you belong here. Uh, my name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor, and I'd just like to welcome you and thank you so much for coming. Uh, guys, it is, it is a great joy to be in here with you tonight. As we begin tonight, uh, we, we kind of have these few wonky weeks, weeks where we're just kind of going down some roads and having some fun with some scriptures and stories like that. As we begin tonight, I want you guys to turn to your neighbor, the person on your left or your right. You have 60 seconds to share with them a story about a neighbor of yours at some point in your life. It could be a funny story. It could be a weird story. It could be an unusual story, but for whatever reason, it is a memorable story. You remember a neighbor in your neighborhood, down the road, maybe right next door. 60 seconds, share a story. When you're done, let your neighbor share their story. 60 seconds. If you see someone sitting there by themselves, go sit with them. If you're sitting there and you're like, dude, I don't have a story, just share your favorite State Farm commercial. All right, 60 seconds is up. Switch. Other person gets to share now. Sheesh. I mean, I mean, just sheesh. Sheesh. I mean, I mean, sheesh. Ooh. I mean, ooh. All right, 60 seconds is wrapping up. Hopefully you guys shared some good stories. Has anybody ever had a really funny neighbor or an unusual neighbor? Yeah, yeah. Or like a mean neighbor? Like, oh yeah. Oh, a lot of hands on that. Man, that's sad. Uh, I want to share a story with you guys. (laughs) Two hands. Wow. Uh, A few years ago, my wife and I lived in Lexington, which is right outside of Columbia. We didn't always live in Greenville. When I first moved up to Greenville, I was sitting at Jim Thompson's house with a group of guys. And they had heard that I moved from Lexington, and one of the guys said, I would, I would never in my life, I would rather die than live in Lexington, South Carolina. And I thought, wow, like what? Okay, what a warm greeting. Uh, nice to meet you too. Uh, so I, I used to live in Lexington, which I loved. I thought it was cool. Um, and I lived in this cul-de-sac. That's what's up. And that is French for people living in a circle. Uh, it's not. So I lived in this cul-de-sac, and 
one of my rules of life, one of the things I really try to live by is I try to get to know at least my immediate proximity, all right? I can't get to know everyone in my neighborhood, but I try to get to know my immediate proximity, like the few houses to my right and left and across the street. So in a cul-de-sac, I was like, all right, we'll just learn the circle. And so I remember first year we dropped off like homemade apple butter to every house. Like we were really, for Christmas, we were really trying to, to get to know them. And as we begin to meet some of the neighbors, uh, one of our neighbors, they were like, I don't know, man, like Ned Flanders vibe type going, like just like a very clean cut, like pleaty pleaties pants, like dudes looking, you know, kind of like the, the old school drip, but a, a real nice guy. And um, it, his wife was super friendly and warm. They had like a seventh grader at the time, and we always try to connect with them. And uh, yeah, they were just really, really nice. The, the, the dad, like, he, um, he was nice, I guess, at first. I can't remember what he said, but he, he made a, the first impression was bad. He said something that I remember offended me. It was about my wife. It wasn't like about my wife, but it was about my wife. I wish I could give you guys more clarity. I just, I just remember thinking, dude, that's, that was a weird comment. And, yeah, thank you. And, um, but he was nice. Like, he was friendly, and he volunteered at this church, and... I don't know, like when they were out of town, we would dog sit for them or house sit for them or, or do whatever. Like, like all the external appearances were there, and we kind of thought, oh, these will, these will be good neighbors. And, and truly, the, the wife and the son were awesome. Uh, the dad, I don't even know his name, like if that says anything to you. As time progressed, every interaction just got a little bit weirder. Has that ever happened to you with anyone? Like it started off kind of, I don't know, neutral. But then every interaction after that, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually it, it got to the point, I don't, know, I don't know if you guys have experienced this yet in high school, but sometimes properties don't have a clean cut line like a fence. And so when you mow, you, you, you never quite know like where to stop mowing. And you know, like some people are super serious about this, man. And sometimes you want to be kind and you're like, dude, I'll just kind of mow this little section. It's like a mailbox strip. I'll mow it for him. And then other times you're like, dude, I, it, it seems to offend him. He's never said thank you. And so like, it was that kind of relationship. Every time I would do yard work, he would never look at me, never talk to me. I was like, bro, you, you work in a church. I'm a pastor. Like why? Look at me, man. And he eventually it went from like weird interactions, cold interactions to just nothing at all. He like never even looked at me or talked to me. And so what I thought originally was going to be a good neighbor after three years of living there turned out to be one of the worst neighbors I've ever had. Not the worst. I've had, I've had uh, some weird, weird neighbors. But like, like literally one day I'm walking through my house and there's a man standing there with his dog in the, in the um, laundry room. And I'm like, how'd you get in here? <laughs> yeah. His name was Jimmy, and he was missing all of his teeth except two, and yeah, interesting. That, well, that's a different story for a different time. Anyway, I replaced his light bulb in his kitchen and went out to barbecue with him one time. It was really strange. All right, anyways, um, but this other guy in the cul-de-sac, his name was Pete, and Pete, upon first impression, was a little odd. Like, I, I want to be fully candid with you guys, and before you judge me, like, we both know, you guys do this too. We have these categories when we meet people of like, oh, cool, relatable, I liked them, weird, uh, probably should avoid them. Like, we all do this, right? He, he fit into my weird category of like, hmm, that was a little odd. But I remember he walked across uh, 
he walked across the, the street when we moved in, and he had on like this super baggy t-shirt that looked like the neck had been pulled down, <laughs> like it was just a real scoop neck going on, and some like basketball shorts that were a couple sizes too big, like he kept having to, to yank them up, and then I think he had like some Adidas slides. I'm not sure, but they were either house, either house slippers or, or slides. I, I can't, I don't remember. And guys, I kid you not, I, I, I kid you not, as he walked, he had a perfect kind of like Jack Sparrow swag going on about him. So like when he would walk, like he would, he would kind of have these like stutter steps going on, but he wasn't intoxicated. It was just like how he walked. And man, if you can imagine, this guy's like probably in his 50s. He's got like disheveled hair. He's got these like rectangular frame glasses that are like down to the bridge of his nose. And he's like, he's like kind of walking towards me like, yo, what's up, man? And he introduced himself. His name is Pete. Real nice guy. And he noticed that a Lowe's delivery truck was at my house and it was dropping off a refrigerator. Pete kind of walked around to the, to the other side of the truck, saw that it was bringing in a fridge. He looks at me with one of the most offended faces I've ever seen. And I was like, what'd I do? He goes, the people that moved out, they didn't leave you their fridge? I said, no, we had to buy a new one. In this room with this crowd, I cannot repeat what came out of his mouth next. I will just say, the man took high offense that they didn't leave me their fridge when they moved out. And it was in that moment that I knew Pete's got my back. Like, Pete is my boy, he is on my side. He has a conviction for refrigeration. That man, that man knows what's up. And as we began to get to know Pete, here's what I learned about Pete. Pete had a lot of health issues, one of which was something was wrong with his equilibrium, and it was affecting the way he walked. And, and he couldn't walk straight. He couldn't balance very well. He had an adult son that was living with him with severe special needs, and Pete just poured all of his time um, into his son and his family, uh, his wife included. And so, like, Pete never really looked at that put together because truly, I think for Pete, it just wasn't a priority. Like, all of his time went into his son and taking care of his family. Pete also rode motorcycles. He loved motorcycles. He had, like, three huge ones. But then he also had, like, this souped-up moped that he would just, like, zip around the neighborhood, which cracked me up because he's got, like, three beefy boys, like Harleys in the garage, and every time I just saw him driving, mm, like going in this moped. But he would always tell me, like, hey, man, if you ever need it, if you ever need to borrow it, you ever want to do it, just take it. And I was like, Pete, you got my bag, dude. Mopeds and refrigerators. I like you, man. Like, Pete turned out to be one of the most caring and thoughtful neighbors that I've ever had. Like, anytime he saw me out and about, he would walk from his house, even though he had this, this balancing problem, he'd walk from his house and come talk to me and say, hey. And the conversations were always weird. Like, truly, if you guys know me, you know I am the worst at small talk. Like, I cannot carry a conversation, right? But with Pete, it was like, dude, it's so awkward anyway. Like, this is great. Like, it, it has no point to begin with. Like, I loved it with Pete. He turned out to be one of my best neighbors ever. And, and what was really interesting is, like, this family that had all the, you know, kind of initial boxes checked of like, oh, I bet they're going to be good neighbors, actually turned out to be one of my worst neighbors ever. Like the dude was just mean and, and cold and, and never wanted to talk and always seemed put off by something. And then Pete over here, my man Jack Sparrow, who I initially thought was like, oh, this is going to be an odd neighbor. And he was, like granted. He turned out to be one of the best neighbors I've ever had. 
And truly, like, if, if, if we think about it and we're honest, we do this with people all the time. Like, we have these categories, these boxes that we check of, like, we meet someone, we have that first impression filter, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to put them in this category, I'm going to check this box, oh, that person, you know, whatever. We do this all the time, and, and some of that's normal, but there's a danger in that, which is if we're not careful, we begin to categorize people into who is worthy of my love and attention and who is just not. And we may not say it like that, but at the end of the day, that's how we act. That's how we operate. I don't have time for them. I, 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 it's, that's an inconvenience. I'm a little annoyed by them. It's always embarrassing to be with them. And so we begin to prioritize our lives around the people that we've already categorized as good neighbors. And tonight I want to look at a teaching of Jesus, probably and arguably one of his most famous teachings, his, his teaching of the Good Samaritan, his parable of the Good Samaritan. And if, if tonight had a title, it would be something like this, Rethinking Our Neighbor. All right, So that would be the title of tonight. And so I want to look at the Good Samaritan parable. That's in Luke chapter 10. You can go ahead and, and start working your way there, Luke chapter 10. This is, I think, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. Uh, if you've been in the church world for any amount of time, you probably already knew about the Good Samaritan. Because people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, follow Jesus or not, organizations and people and, and, and individuals who don't believe in Jesus or God or whatsoever have coined the term or used the term Good Samaritan. And it typically means someone who does something kind or an act of mercy, someone who goes out of their own way to do something nice for someone else in need. Oh, you're a Good Samaritan. Any Seinfeld fans in the house? Probably not. Oh, okay, maybe a couple. The, the season finale is based on a the Good Samaritan law, and the entire cast of Seinfeld goes to jail because they broke the law. <laughs> but but the, the title Good Samaritan is not just confined to those who believe in Jesus. The, the title is derived from this teaching of Jesus, and it's been leveraged and taken way out of context and applied and used here to advance people's ideas or agendas or whatever. And it's become probably one of Jesus' most well-known statements, at least, even though we may not know what else he's talking about. So I want to look at the Good Samaritan parable tonight. I want us to rethink our neighbor. I want to invite us to rethink our neighbor as we study this text. Now, Jesus has been doing ministry for quite a while at this point. He's, uh, his reputation has spread. People want to come to see him and know him. If you read the Gospels, if you read the, the first four books of the New Testament at any length of time, you'll begin to see this interesting thing happening with Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. God in the flesh, Jesus, begins to teach about the kingdom of heaven and about salvation and about God's love and belief and faith and, and these other things that we'll, we're familiar with him teaching. And the kingdom of heaven has two legs in, in the public Jesus of ministry, the words of God and the works of God. And so Jesus is teaching with authority and he's doing miracles that no one can explain. And so his reputation is spreading. Simultaneously, the religious leaders do not like this. Like, at best, some are curious about this backwoods nobody from Nazareth. Nothing comes from Nazareth, Nazareth, by the way. This backwoods nobody who's doing these things and has this reputation and teaches in this way. And he starts to gain a following, and the religious leaders are in contention with Jesus, so much so that they hate him. They want to trap him, literally, physically, and murder him. That's, that's their whole agenda. The reason being, they're losing control. These these men have, have leveraged a system of religion to control people 
all the while elevating their own status, believing, genuinely believing that, that they're living in proper ways. They understand God. They don't. We do. You guys are less than. And if you would just live like us, you could be holy like us, except they themselves were not obeying their own rules. I mean, it was just, it, it was hypocrisy to its fullest extent in which Jesus calls them that. He puts them on blast and calls them that. And so you have this, this uh, tension building in the Gospels where the religious leaders do not like God. I mean, the irony of that is pretty striking. And so Jesus, at this point, has just sent out some disciples to do ministry on their own for their first time. They come back to Jesus. They're excited to tell Jesus what has happened. He's excited to hear about it. And as they begin to describe what's going on, Jesus then uh, celebrates and encourages them. And all of a sudden, this lawyer stands up and tries to trap Jesus with a question. And that's where we're going to pick up today. So, Luke chapter 10 That's where we're going to be right now, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, which is a bad move to begin with, right? Like, here's this dude, you think, yo, I got this. I'm going to trick him. And when you see that word lawyer, most of us in the room probably go to, like, the American understanding, like a courtroom and a lawyer. Like, he's on, he's, he's, this is the defense attorney, and he's got this argument put together. It's not that kind of lawyer. In this culture, in this time, in this part of the world, a lawyer was someone who had studied the laws of God, was an expert in the Old Testament writings, and instructed people on how to obey those laws and live under those laws. So similar to a religious leader like a Pharisee, but not quite in the same sect. So this is a a lawyer, someone who is an expert in Old Testament, we would say. So he stands up. He's feeling big. He's like, yo, yo, yo. I got this. And he walks up to Jesus, and he thinks he's got the perfect question. And he asks Jesus this. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. And if you understand the context, you can kind of imagine him in this moment feeling like, like, yo, I got him. His boys are behind him. If we put some Gen Z terminology to this, his boys are behind him. Like doing all sorts of nonsense and finger flips and whatever else. Why does he think that this is a a question that's going to trap Jesus? Well, because remember, the religious leaders are at odds with Jesus. Why? Because of what he's teaching and how he's teaching it. So Jesus has said things like this. Uh, Anyone who wants to see the kingdom of heaven needs to believe in me. He said things like that. Or he said, God has loved the world like this, that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life and never die. Or just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, anyone who looks at the Son of Man who will be lifted up will never die and find life forever. Or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I'm from the Father, and I do nothing that the Father hasn't told me to do. Or believe in me, or have faith or your faith has made you well, or I forgive your sins, go in peace, your faith has healed you. Like he, he said these type of things. Never once did Jesus walk around in his teachings to, to uh, people who were far from God and say, hey, 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 you guys need to live according to the scriptures, the law of Moses. Who's obeying the Ten Commandments in here? Who's, who's disobeying? Like Jesus... His sermons didn't sound like that. 
His tag words were belief and faith and forgiveness and, and love. And the religious leaders of the day had no category for this type of teaching because they took offense at the fact that it seemed like he was overriding their religiosity and their system of belief, the Old Testament law. He wasn't. He was fulfilling it to the greatest degree and inviting people to believe in him and find fulfillment to the law through him. But the religious leaders couldn't hear that. And so this lawyer stands up and asks Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> and he's looking at his boys, and his boys are like, <laughs> because the lawyer thinks Jesus will answer how he always answers. He'll say something kind of hippie, hipster, fluffy, millennial nonsense, some kind of like, y'all have faith, believe in me. Like he'll say something along those lines. And if Jesus uses those tag words, faith, belief, love, forgiveness, if he even goes there, We've got him trapped because then we can say, oh, so Jesus, you don't think that people find eternal life through obeying God's laws? Interesting. They would have had him trapped. This lawyer thinks he's got him based on how he answers this question with others. But look at what Jesus does. He's so clever. He flips the script on this guy. Jesus, teacher, what can I do? Works-based ideology. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? <laughs> Yo, gotcha. Try to get me. I flipped it on you. You're a lawyer? What's the law say, fool? Like, I'm paraphrasing the fool. It's in the Hebrew. But, I mean, <laughs> what does the law say? I mean, this is not what the lawyer expected. The lawyer expected him to say, believe in me. You will find eternal life through faith in the Son of Man. Something along those lines. Jesus doesn't say that. What's the law say? At this point, the lawyer's kind of on his heels. Jesus says, how do you read it? Lawyer, leaning on his expertise, says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. In other words, love God with all your emotions, the expression of your emotions, all your feelings. Love God with your inmost self the core of who you are, your soul. Love God with all of your abilities and what you're able to do, your strength, and love God with all your intellect and logic and rationale, your mind. Love God with the totality of yourself. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer summarized the entirety of the Old Testament with those two things. Jesus would affirm this. He's taught this very thing. The Ten Commandments are focused on God and others. So love God and love others is a summary of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So what's the problem there? Anyone? Huh? Yeah, just shout it out. He, he did, yes. But what's the conflict? What's the conflict? Hold on, we're not even at the Samaritan yet. This, this. Hey, what can I do to be saved? What's the law say? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Jesus says, yeah, do that and you'll find life. What's the conflict? This is um, like not a trick question. What's the conflict? You can't. You can't. You are already born into a broken system. You can't love God with the entirety of yourself through your own efforts, through a self-propelled earning mentality of works, 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 works. 
Hashtag Rihanna. You can't. And truly, if we're really honest, we can't even love our neighbor as ourselves, can we? This guy's, what can I do? Works-based, not grace-based. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's the law say? Well, love God entirely and your neighbor like yourself. Jesus says, do that and you'll live for sure. But Jesus is doing this very clever tongue-in-cheek. What he's saying is, do the impossible, yeah, and you'll find life. But you can't do that. The Old Testament law was never meant to provide salvation. Paul says in Romans 3.20, it cannot save you. The law was always meant to point you ahead to the one who can save you, who can fulfill the law, and through faith in him, you have fulfilled the law. Jesus has given him this very like clever tongue-in-cheek, you can't do the answer that you gave me. But look how the lawyer responds, verse 29. But desire, desiring to justify himself, like this guy, he, he's caught in his trap, but he wants to justify himself. And he says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And so in other words, what this guy's saying is, well, I've got loving God down. Love God with the totality of myself? Sure, I got that down. Well, but who's my neighbor, though? Hmm? You, see what, you see what the lawyer did. He's created categories. Like who, in other words, who, who's really deserving of my love? Like, how am I supposed to give this away? Who would you call my neighbor, Jesus? Because the truth is, when it comes to loving others, the lawyer and everybody in this room falls into the trap of, I love those who are easily lovable. I love those who are in my immediate radius. I love those who are in some way in my life because they're easy to love and they elevate me and my status and they advance what I'm trying to do in this life. There are very, very few people who would honestly, honestly say, every day of my life I make efforts to love people that I absolutely cannot stand. Right? Most of us just love those who are kind of magnetic with our personalities. And that's what this guy's doing. Well, who's my neighbor? Are you saying everybody? I gotta love everybody? Who's my neighbor? Like the house next door? Or my whole road? That's what the guy's asking. So Jesus answers the lawyer's question, not with an answer, but with a story. And so Jesus begins to tell a parable. And the parables of Jesus were riddles. They were intended to be confusing at surface, uh, at face value, because Jesus wants you to wrestle and grapple with the deeper truths. But parables also revealed kingdom realities through earthly contexts. And so he tells this story, this riddle, this parable. Jesus replied, a man, likely a Jewish man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, he's describing in that moment what everyone would know in this context. Jesus is talking about a road. It was actually called the Blood Road because of, of how violent it was. It was about a 17-mile stretch. It's still there today. That goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You're dropping thousands of feet in elevation over 17 miles, so pretty rapid descent. Had huge rocks and crevices and, and fall-offs. Made it the perfect place for robbers, for bandits to hide and, and catch travelers along the way. It's called the blood road for that reason. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and then they departed, leaving him half dead. 
So they, they humiliated him. They, they ripped his clothes off. They took everything he had down to his clothes. He's laying there naked. He's barely alive. He's half dead. Look at verse 31. Now by chance, Jesus is storytelling here. There just so happened to be <laughs> a priest who was going down that same road. It's kind of like a bad joke right now, right? Like, some robbers, a Samaritan, and a priest walk into a bar, right? Like it kind of has that flavor to it, right? But he's doing this intentionally. The priest represents Israel's law, the relationship with God the Father. The priest represents the mediator, those who speak to God on behalf of people and those who speak to people on behalf of God. The priest is like the holy one of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is talking to an expert in the law. The priests would have been... Uh, experts as well, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, the man that had been assaulted, he passed by on the other side. So the most likely character to help this poor man who had been beaten up, in Jesus' story here, this priest who knew God and represented God to the people and the people to God and made sacrifices on behalf of people and their sin to a holy God and went into God's presence and prayed on behalf of the people. A priest in, a, in an official position, the most likely candidate to have mercy and compassion on this man who had been beaten and, and abused and robbed and left for dead, sees him standing there and then intentionally, look at what Jesus says, goes out of his way to pass by him goes to the other side of the road so he doesn't have to deal with this inconvenience. Goes out of his way. Goes to the other side of the road. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. You guys are like, well, who's a Levite? What's a Levite? Levites were, uh, think about it this way. If the priest was kind of like modern day pastors, Levites would be like modern day worship leaders. Shout out Nathan. What's up? So Levites like helped in the temple. They helped officiate the worship and, and get things ready for the priests. And uh, they, they were from the tribe of Levi, but not descendants of Aaron. So they weren't in the priesthood officially, but they were helping out in the temple. But it was still someone who's like in the, the role of we help people worship. We help people connect to God. We, we too stand before God on behalf of others. We too curate this atmosphere that invites others in to be able to worship God. What's the Levite do? When he came to that place, he saw him, and he passed by on the other side as well. So the two most likely candidates to help this poor man pass him by. Why? Well, that's kind of the beauty of this parable. It's a fictional story. Jesus doesn't give the answer why. And you can kind of, I mean, there's some cultural things we could dig into, but, but the bottom line is they passed him by when they should have had mercy. They passed him by when they should have stopped. They overlooked him when they should have paused to see him. They didn't want to be inconvenienced by the burden of what would be required of them by taking care of this man. Are we guilty of that? When it comes to loving others, when it comes to loving our neighbors? Are we guilty of the same thing? Don't we have a million excuses in moments like these? We often think of like, ah, just, ooh, any other time, and I could. I could any other time, dude, but right now I'm just swamped like I got so much on the plate, right? Or if we're really honest, I can't. Dude, like this is a whole different category of person than me. Like I can't associate with this. It's embarrassing. Busyness and status 
are oftentimes the killers of compassion in our hearts. So Jesus tells this story where the two most likely people to help walk right by. Then, a Samaritan, everyone on the count of three, I want you to gasp in shock and awe. One, two, three. Thank you. That was really good. That was really good. Oh, that was nice. Jesus' audience, when he taught this, would have most likely done the same thing when he rolled out that word, Samaritan. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you guys are getting it now. I cannot, on this stage, in the time I have, put into words how much hatred and violence and judgment and racism existed between Jewish people and Samaritans. I don't have the time. I, I, couldn't have, I couldn't find the words. But let me just say this. It was common for every Jewish man at least once a day to pray a prayer, something along these lines. God, I thank you, and I know that I will not see Samaritans in the resurrection. It'd be similar to you saying, God, thank you so much. I will not see that race of people in heaven when I die. Every day they would pray that. The hatred that existed between Samaritans and Jews is unreal. Jesus is about to make the hero of this story the most unlikely and offensive candidate this audience could possibly imagine. It loses its force on us. It loses the oomph, the <gasps> no. <laughs> like It loses the scandal because we don't, we hear Samaritan, we're like, okay, is that like a charity organization? Like, what is that? What is that? In his day, this was incredibly and radically offensive. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he sent him, he set him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So get this, this man is, is robbed. Everything is taken from him. He's laying here half dead, barely breathing, naked. And this Samaritan, thank you, comes up and dresses him. With what? The man's got no clothes. With his own or maybe some that he was carrying. He pours on oil and wine. Well, that's a weird combo. <laughs> Sounds like somebody's getting lit. What is going on there, right? Let's break it down. It was common for people to travel with those two things for, for meal preparation, oil for cooking, wine for drinking. It's very common to travel with those in Jesus' time. That word poured there is more like, like lavish, like, like, like the whole bottle's out. Wine would have been a disinfectant, the alcohol would have sanitized the wounds, and the oil would have provided this kind of like protection, kind of like neosporin. It would have been soothing to the ache and the, and the sting of his wounds. And then he takes the man, he gets off his own animal, most likely a donkey here, and then he takes the man and he sets him maybe over the saddle of the donkey. He, he trades places with the man. He, he trades his position, his status with the man. He walks this 17-mile road, and lets the man ride this donkey. And then he brings him to this inn, and he took out two denarii, which 
in this time was about 60 days worth of payment to stay in this inn. So the dude's putting him up for two months in this inn. When they got there, it says the next day he took out two denarii. So this means that this guy spent the night with this man, tended his wounds through the night, took care of him through the night, made sure he was okay through the night, and then sets him up for two months of healing in the sand. And then says to the innkeeper, take care of him. Whatever you spend, spend it, and I'll pay you back when I come back. I mean, if that's not like a recipe to be taken advantage of, right? Like, here's my credit card. Just spend it on whatever. <laughs> I trust you. So what is Jesus saying to the lawyer in this parable? Three points, I think. The first is this. What is a good neighbor? A good neighbor is someone who pauses long enough to see with compassion. So the priest and the worship leader, the Levite, the most likely candidates to pause and look at this man with compassion. Look at what the scriptures say both times. The priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by. The Levite was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by. The Samaritan, when he saw thank you, when he saw him, what did he do? He had compassion. Most of us in this room do not know how to use our eyes the way that Jesus used his. We know what the word compassion sounds like. We might even have a surface-level definition of it. But what it truly means, like when you understand what it means fleshed out in the Scriptures, it, it's the equivalent to like, I'm noticing something that burdens me so much, my, my stomach is in knots. I, I am physically disrupted by this. I, I am burdened by this. I have compassion for this. Compassion broken down means I, I, I have a willingness to suffer with this person to come alongside and suffer with this person. Most of us see suffering, and we might even feel bad about it, but we're not willing to share it. But when, when, when you pause long enough to see someone with compassion, you become a good neighbor. A number of years ago, I was doing some homeless ministry in Atlanta, and we were just going through the streets and, and trying to have conversations with people and invite them back to the safe house where we'd feed them and we'd preach the gospel, and, and we would give them fresh socks, which is like the hot commodity, <laughs> and we would um, wash their feet, and we would clean them up and, and talk to them. And I remember, I mean, it's so interesting what you can learn, you know, when you're outside of your own bubbles, and I remember talking to uh, one of the leaders there whose dad was like crazy rich, and this guy decided to walk away from it all and live homeless just so that he could empathize with the Atlanta homeless people. And I'll never forget this. What he told me was what the people in Atlanta, what the homeless people in Atlanta crave more than food and crave more than a blanket and crave more than fresh socks is they crave to be seen. They crave someone who can look at them and actually pause and make eye contact. I see you. You're a real person to me. And guys, we've all been there, right? We've all been downtown in some city, and, and we encounter a homeless person, and, and what do we do? We, oh, we just clam up, and we pretend like they are not there. We don't even make eye contact. We keep walking, right? Have that happen enough times to you a day, and you begin to believe that you are invisible. You ever notice how a lot of homeless people just cross the street without any regard for cars, oncoming traffic? You ever pause long enough to think, why do they do that? 
People treat them like they're invisible. They're not used to being noticed or seen. And this guy in Atlanta is telling me what they want more than anything is to be seen, to have someone just pause and say, I see you. Your story matters to me. Could I listen to it? Would you talk? A good neighbor is someone who pauses long enough to see with compassion, to see someone's plight and share in it. I know we're busy. I know we, we can't pause for everything, but oftentimes we use busyness as the excuse to avoid. What else does Jesus want us to learn from this passage? Man, by using Samaritan, I have to believe that Jesus wants us to walk away with this lesson. A good neighbor is someone who crosses racial, ethnic, and social categories. Again, we don't understand the emphasis of how scandalous and offensive it was for Jesus to use Samaritan. Of all the people he could have used, he uses Samaritan. And we don't get it because we're not in that culture. Jesus made the hero of this story a good Samaritan. Jesus made the first like, really vocal missionary that we see in the Gospels a, a bad Samaritan. It, it was a woman that he met at a well from Samaria, and she fit every category of what a bad Samaritan was supposed to be. And she became one of Jesus' most vocal missionaries, telling everyone about Jesus. It was the longest one-on-one conversation ever recorded in the Gospels, and it was the first person that he actually revealed himself to as Messiah, was this woman from Samaria. Jesus broke every racial and social category. And oftentimes we don't. I mean, it, it, it's hard to find like a, a modern-day version of this, but truly, like, I mean, let's imagine a little bit. I, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time here, um, <laughs> but I do want to provoke a little bit here. Like, let's imagine, man, like for the die-hard, you know, born-and-red Republicans in the room, and you're trying to pray and ask Jesus, like, dude, who am I supposed to love? And Jesus shares a story where... Some Republican political leaders walk past some suffering people and then makes a Democrat the hero of the story. I dare say for the Republicans in the room, it might stir you up. For the dyed-in-cloth blue Democrats in the room, likewise, man. If Jesus is like, you want to know what it looks like to love? Look at this Republican and look what he's doing. You'd be like, do what? Come on now. He's Republican. He can't love. He's ignorant. (laughs) We have the categories, right? Think about if Jesus would choose a particular race that in our country or culture right now just is a hot topic. If Jesus were teaching today and we were asking him, what does it look like to love? And he would make the hero of the story maybe an illegal immigrant from Mexico right now. There's a lot of people in our country that be, no, 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 no. See, see, oh, we could love them if, if they would get their legal affairs in order. We could love them if, man, if... if if they would just change their status a bit, if they would obey the rules, then they'd be lovable. And Jesus, dude, Jesus doesn't bother with any of that. He chooses the most scandalous and offensive category of person to prove the point that a good neighbor crosses racial, ethnic, and social categories. The kingdom of heaven and Christianity right now, by the way, is the most multicultural and, and multiracial system of religion on the planet and will be forever. If you've ever read Revelation and seen John's description of what heaven will be like, 
And I got news for us too, man, the Americans in the room. We are late to the game, by the way. The first generation of, of Christians who believed in Jesus, it was a compilation of people from Israel, Iran, Turkey, Liberia, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Middle East and North Africans were the first generation of people to believe in Jesus. So many of us walk around with this worldview, this lens of, of understanding Christianity as kind of like, it seems to be a very white religion and other people are slowly coming into it. No, 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 no. We are late to the game. Christianity is an interracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural, with a foundation of love belief system. And something like a racist Christian is an oxymoron. It cannot exist. If there are categories in our hearts that deem some people as less worthy to be loved simply because of their skin color or what country they're from or their culture, I think Jesus would tell you, you're not a good neighbor and you're definitely not loving like I am. What else does Jesus want us to learn from this? Lastly, a good neighbor loves lavishly, oftentimes at their own expense. The man, the Samaritan, who found this, this uh, assaulted man dresses wounds with his own clothes, poured his oil and wine, set him on his donkey, walked him to the inn, stayed with him all night, paid for two months' worth, and then gave him kind of an open tab line of credit. Most of us love if it's convenient, if it's the right time, if we get something out of it if it makes sense to us, but to love lavishly at our own expense, sacrificially, man. If you haven't picked it up as we've been talking, Jesus is our good neighbor. Jesus is the one who found us half dead, who approached us, treated our wounds, dressed us in his righteousness, traded places with us and status with us, walks with us, gives us a place to stay, and kind of an open line of credit. Hey, when I come back, I'll take care of this, is what the Good Samaritan says. Jesus is our good neighbor. And what he tells this lawyer, he says, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus describes what a good neighbor is, and it's someone who loves like Jesus loves. Last two verses, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he's got the lawyer. The lawyer came at Jesus with a trick question. Trap, brow. Jesus is like, I got one for you. Who's the good neighbor now? I mean, he'd be a fool to say anything but the Samaritan. He couldn't even say the Samaritan, though. That's how, that's how much hatred and racism existed in this man's heart. He didn't even say the word Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy, who showed him compassion. Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. And it just kind of ends there. We're kind of left hanging with what this guy walked away doing. We don't know. But this is a personal conversation. This is a parable being taught as personal evangelism to this man and to us. What, what Jesus does in this parable is he shifts the question from, who is my neighbor, to are you a neighbor? Like the lawyer walks up, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, who's worthy to be loved by me? And Jesus shifts the whole paradigm to, are you loving? 
period. Stop worrying about who and how often and where. I mean, basically, Jesus is teaching in this parable to take notice, take pity, and take action. Like, those are the kind of the takeaways. Take notice and see someone, take pity and have compassion, and then take action and do something about it. That's Jesus is, is teaching this is the way of love. And the lawyer is asking, well, who? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus is basically saying everyone, everywhere, every time. But forget worrying about who is your neighbor and start worrying about are you being a neighbor? Are you someone who is loving lavishly and at your own expense and your own time and your own status? Do you live according to your boxes and categories? Do you, see, do you deem someone worthy of, oh, this person's probably going to be a good neighbor because of how they look, and this person's probably going to be a weird neighbor because of how they look, and you're blown away by the surprise of, wow, I need to get away from the categories and just start loving people like Jesus loved who crossed every, every divide and every category and stepped into our story. Who's your neighbor? Everyone. The real question is, are you being a neighbor to everyone? Do you love like Jesus? This parable isn't about like, oh, we should probably do something nice for someone. Oh, we should be kind to others. And we should. But the underlying tone of this parable, the kingdom reality that Jesus wants us to take away is, stop worrying about who you're supposed to love and just love. Be a good neighbor instead of looking for good neighbors. Love like Jesus and become a neighbor. Everyone, everywhere, every time. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for your word and your teaching. It steps on our toes. It was offensive when you taught it. It's still offensive. It's still hard to swallow. It is tough to wrestle with. But Jesus, you call us into something deeper than a conditional love. You modeled what perfect love is. You've invited us into that same love. And for those who have the eyes to see it, it is actually an incredibly much better life than anything we could ever do on our own. To live and love like you did, we discover purpose and hope and joy and happiness. Jesus, your word says we love because we've first been loved. We thank you for loving us, showing us what being a good neighbor looks like. May we be good neighbors to those around us. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.